0: Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate communities shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. You can learn more about our church by visiting cornerstonetulsa.org or by finding us on social media. This year we're spending January through August working through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7. through We gather every Sunday morning at 9.30 and 11 o'clock and we'd love for you to come and be part of our community. And if we can pray for you, or if you have any questions, email us at hello at cornerstonetulsa.org. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Good morning. Matthew 5, 9. <clears throat> Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Thanks. Please pray with me. Thank you, Lord, that we may find peace in you and your love. We, we pray that we may be used as instruments of peacemaking wherever you have placed us by extension of your grace and the sharing of your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So a week and a half ago, uh, I was having lunch with my friend Chris, sitting right here. And Chris said, John, when are you going to take some time off, take a break? I thought, hmm. I hadn't really thought about that. And I remembered how uh, the day before, I had just come in on a Monday morning after teaching the Anglican course, the intro to Anglicanism some of you came to, and it had been kind of like... We, Emily and I had been sprinting as a family for six months, sprinting uphill as, you know, we had a big fall as a family and then a big start to the new year. And the staff said, hey, when are you guys going to take some time off? And I remembered how the week before, Emily said to me, John, I think we're really due to take some time off. And I began to think, I wonder if the Lord's trying to tell us something. And so that afternoon, I was, after talking with Chris, I thought, I, just, I wonder how many like, points we have on our you know, Southwest card so that we could fly somewhere. Well, and it turns out we had enough points to fly about anywhere. And so that afternoon, this is the most spontaneous thing any, any, either, either Emily or I have ever done. That afternoon, we booked plane tickets to Cancun and found a resort for the following Monday. Like the most spontaneous thing we've ever done. We called our parents and said, hey, we want to flee the country next week. Will you help us do that? And so like five days, five days after we booked it, we hopped on a plane and we spent this week in Cancun on the beach reading books and not caring for children. And we care for them, you know, in our hearts. <laughs> we, we let our parents care for them with their hands and their voices. And so Emily and I did this really spontaneous thing and just got away and breathed a little bit this week and my chest is just scorched. It looks like a beat. I should have applied sunscreen the first day. But it was, it was a really, really good thing. I tend to be a person who, like, I'm, I, I'm gracious with other people. Hey, you really need to take some time off. You need to set some boundaries. You need to prioritize self-care. I am like that toward other people, but when it comes to caring for myself, I tend to push pretty hard. Um, I've never vacationed very well. Like, in my adult working years, I don't take breaks. Other people can do that, but that's, I'm just too crucial. You know, that's kind of the arrogance of myself. Uh, thinking that I can't take time off. And and all of us at times can fall into that temptation of thinking that we are so integral uh, and other people are more important than you are that we really shouldn't care for ourselves. And that's that's just really not true. Uh, it's, it's a lie that, like, we're robots and never need rest. The way that God designed the world and the way He, he who wants for us to operate is with rhythms of work and rest. And some of us have affairs. Some of us do crazy things. Some of us get into really bad habits because those habits of work and rest get out of alignment, and so we, we need a release. We need relief somehow. We're not designed uh, to be robots. We're, we're designed to have rhythms of work and rest. Sometimes, like, the technological world in which we live allows us to believe lies that we're limitless. So in previous generations, people marked their workday by the rising and the setting of the sun. And when the sun goes down, you pretty much go to sleep. But we uh, we get to fake daylight because of electricity. Uh, you know, in, increasing, in the past, more and more, like, folks, folks could have a definite end to their workday, but because our work computer goes with us everywhere you go. And so you can get pinged and text and notified and Facebook messages and group me and all of the other ways, Slack, that people contact you via work. We really never get off. And it makes us believe this lie that we're meant to be robotic. We're meant to be limitless. And that's just not how God designed the world to work. Uh, we, we are creatures. We have vulnerabilities. We have weaknesses. We need rest. And for me, you know, just remembering that I need to take time off, which should be more of a habit than an occasional thing like this, remembering that I needed to take time off really sets us up for the season of the year where we go into uh, uh, this Wednesday, which is called Ash Wednesday. We're on Ash Wednesday. We remember that we are mortal, that we are fragile, that we are dust, and to dust we're going to return. And so for all of us who need a reminder that we are creatures, that we have limits, that we are fragile, Ash Wednesday is really a, a fantastic invitation to come into tune with God's reality, about our design and, and, and the way that He wants for us to flourish. And so some of you grew up in church where Ash Wednesday was a deal and you kind of knew about that. I didn't know about Ash Wednesday except for people with black stuff on their head the one day a year. I didn't know about that for a long time. And maybe that's you. Others of you are familiar with it. But this Wednesday night at 6 o'clock here, we're going to have an Ash Wednesday service. It's going to be relatively short, just under an hour. I think we have child care for preschool and younger. Um, and there's a really fantastic speaker. I mean, just a phenomenal speaker. I happen to be married to her, uh, but she's really, really good. So come in here, Emily. We're going to worship together. I should be really uh, rich. So our beatitude for this week, lucky number seven is blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called children of God. Uh, This has been a great study. Uh, Lots of folks try to group the Beatitudes in different ways, different ways of organizing it, trying to get at Jesus' internal logic for studying the Beatitudes. But as I look at it, and we're at number seven, there's this elegant movement from situations that Jesus describes as being blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Starts for these people in, in precarious situations. And it moves to people with, with certain dispositions. So you go to, uh, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And then last week we looked at, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So we have these situations, and we move to dispositions. And then as we transition uh, to number seven, we're seeing uh, moral decisions. These moral decisions people make that inherently receive the blessing of God. And in all of this, in these situations, these unfortunate situations people find themselves in, and in these dispositions of character that some people uh, have by nature, and the moral decisions that people make, Jesus is giving us this kaleidoscopic view of the blessed life and the people who are, are blessed in his kingdom, who are his people. It shows us his values and his priorities. The Roman world, and you have to remember, the Bible was not written in the 21st century. It was written in the, especially the New Testament, in the first century, given to people in a very different time and place than us. And in the Roman world, in the Roman Empire, people had very different views of what would make for peace, what would make for a peaceful life. Uh, From a a, a strictly imperial perspective, Roman peace was established by eradicating all political rivals. And so a great way to make peace is to literally eliminate all of your enemies. I would say it's a bit of a sham of peace. But they had enemies from without, other empires, other invading peoples, other nations, and they also had invasions from within, threats to the peace within. So rival politicians, rebellions, insurrections that had to be wiped out. And the Romans found that if you publicly executed your enemies, it turned out to be a pretty effective way to maintain at least an illusion of peace. Because, and that was part of the, the, the deal about the cross. The, the cross was a, a violent, painful, public execution. It's a way of saying, if you cross us, this is what's going to happen to you. Within Israel, you had uh, other visions of what would make for peace, what would set up a peaceful life. Uh, you had Herod and the Sadducees who, in their own way, uh, th- thought that you could get peace by compromise with the enemy. So let's collude with the bad guys, with the Romans, and we can get a little bit of peace for ourselves. You had the Pharisees who wanted to establish peace by religious purity, a way of like, if we're just good enough, God's going to have to bless us and honor us by giving us peace, giving us back our land. You had this group of people like John the Baptist who were called Essenes who lived out in the wilderness and thought, we're going to just remove ourselves completely from society and then God will come with power and judge the earth and then we'll have peace. And then finally, you had folks like Peter and the Zealots who wanted to violently overthrow the government and take peace by force. In each of these competing visions for peace, you've got Rome, you've got Herod and the the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, the scribes, and the zealots, all of these people coalesce and collide on Palm Sunday, which we'll look at the, the week before Easter, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the people are lauding him as king, and other people are loathing him, detesting his existence, seeing him as a threat to their peace, and all the while, Jesus, on the donkey, fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy, is weeping at the people saying, if only you knew what would really make for peace. At this moment of what should be regarded as triumph, when many of the people are lauding him as king, Jesus is weeping saying, your intentions are misguided. You're missing what God is doing. If only you knew what made for peace. And some of my favorite moments of the Gospels are when Jesus cries, when he cries at the tomb of Lazarus, when he cries in the garden, when he cries on the donkey going into Jerusalem. And I think Jesus weeps over us too. When we, in an effort to make peace for ourselves on our own terms, do stuff that is just misguided and mistaken and wrong, I think that Jesus weeps over the predicament we put ourselves in saying, brother, sister, if you only knew what actually made for peace. The Romans and then these various religious groups within Israel had pragmatic visions for peace, pragmatic visions for peace. They asked themselves, what do I need to do to achieve my own vision of peace? And so the Romans, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Zealots, the Essenes, all of them were trying to to answer, like, what, what is going to work? What's the thing that if I do it, I'm going to get peace on my terms? They're concerned with what works, what's going to get the job done. And so in their case, the ends would justify the means. And because they were primarily driven by what works, what's going to get us the end that we want, peace on our terms, they were willing to compromise morally along the way. And so we see this really chilling scene when Jesus is taken before Pilate just before his crucifixion where the people are pleading with Pilate saying, if you release Jesus, you are being disloyal to Caesar, And they were willing to side with Caesar over Jesus if it meant getting their country back on their terms. But in the Sermon on the Mount and in this beatitude, Jesus presents a vision for peacemaking that is not primarily pragmatic, concerned about what is actually going to work, what's going to achieve peace, but one that's ontological, teaching you a new word this morning. Ontological has much more to do with who you are It's a vision for peace that is more about one's identity, one's nature, than about doing something that's actually going to work as its chief concern. Jesus' vision for peace is the people of the kingdom behaving in a particular way, not because it's in the most practical, not because it works in those pragmatic kind of terms, but because it's in our redeemed nature to behave like this. Jesus' vision for peace is grounded in who we are as his followers. Now, I'll have you note in in the Beatitude that Andy read, it does not say, blessed are the peacemakers because they get the job done. It says, blessed are the peacemakers because they're just like their dad. Blessings on the peacemakers because they will be called children of God. In these people who are behaving as peacemakers, in them and in their behavior, they are bearing and showing off to the world a family resemblance, demonstrating that they bear the character of their heavenly father. Uh, While I was on the beach, I read uh, one fun book and one, like, interesting book. The fun book was all about Bill Murray, the Tao of Bill Murray, which was really fun, as I hoped it would be. The other one was this, and I had as much fun reading this as the Bill Murray one, called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And honestly, if you want to get a sense of some of my hopes and some of my vision for Cornerstone in the years to come, read this book. Uh, it, will, it will mess with you in wonderful ways. And in the book, uh, I think it's one of the most important books I've read in a couple of years, Kreider is trying to explain how on earth it was that the church grew. The church started out as this Jewish minority movement whose leader had been publicly executed, and it grew to overtake the Roman Empire and ultimately become its official religion. How on earth did that happen? There was official, systematic persecution by the government at times. There was intense social pressure from pagans, from Jews alike, toward people who were of the way, followers of Jesus. They had zero evangelistic strategy and zero growth strategy whatsoever, and yet they exploded. In addition to that, if you wanted to become a Christian, it was exceptionally difficult to do. If you wanted to become a Christian in the primitive church it was a 2 to 3 year process of what they called catechesis of instruction and training with rigorous scrutiny. You weren't allowed to receive the Eucharist or receive communion until after you were baptized which could take 2 to 3 years of intense training as a, as an adult. So it was hard to get in. They were persecuted. It was a religious minority. They had no growth strategy, and yet they grew explosively. How did that happen and why did that happen? That's what Kreider is trying to answer in the book. And in short, Crider demonstrate that, demonstrates that the church was committed to the slow work of so deeply shaping the identity and the habits of individuals according to the way of Jesus so, like we're going to take this person who says they want to be a disciple of Jesus and we're going to do a complete overhaul of their affections, of their longings, of their, of, their, of, their, of their self-conception, of their allegiances, of what they've memorized, of their cultural habits. He called this overall their habitus. We're going to do such an overhaul that these people live in a way that is so compelling that the pagan around them, around them will see how they live and say, I've got to learn more. The church was so committed to restructuring and reforming this Christian identity and habitus that it naturally attracted people, and in spite of the disincentives to becoming a Christian, the church grew. For early believers, uh, behavior flowed out of an anchored identity. And many of the Christians in the first centuries were not literate people. And so it was a largely oral culture. And in, their, in this oral culture, they had these phrases that they all memorized as a way of like, like triggering them to think about what they had learned in their catechesis. And one of the phrases that you see again and again in the writings of church fathers and mothers in early history is just, I am a Christian. And this phrase, I am a Christian, was so centering and clarifying. It, it reminded people that who I am is by nature in contrast to the way that everyone else in, in, my, in my family, in my neighborhood, in my city are living. It was contrasted. It, was, it clarified their values and their choices were different than other people. I am a Christian, therefore I behave in this way. And for the early Christians, the the in this way of that was unquestionably the Sermon on the Mount. It was probably every other page in the first hundred pages of this book that the Sermon on the Mount comes up. In all likelihood, the early church would have memorized it in its entirety. And when it came to training a disciple in the way of Jesus, it was training them in the way of the Sermon on the Mount. It didn't matter if it worked as an evangelistic strategy or a missional strategy. That was not their point. Their concern was not what's going to advance the gospel. Their first concern was what is faithfulness to our Christian identity. It didn't matter if you said you were a Christian. The proof was in what you did. This is Kreider, quoting church leader Cyprian. He said, beloved brethren, we are philosophers not in words but in deeds, we exhibit our wisdom, not by our dress, but by truth. We know virtues by their practice rather than through boasting of them. We do not speak great things, but we live them. So your words are utterly meaningless. Your words are utterly meaningless if your life, this was the conviction of the primitive church, if your life does not look like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And so their, their training process, their, their catechesis for onboarding new believers was so rigorous so that their, their regular way of living in the world would tell a story about their identity and the God who saved them and had transformed them. The way that they lived was to tell a story about the person of Jesus. We do not speak noble things, great things, but we live them, which sounds like First John. This is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or a sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and with truth. And wanting to transform the reflexive actions, the knee-jerk behaviors of these people who would come under intense persecution, the church developed this rigorous catechesis This rigorous training program to onboard new believers. And chiefly, it meant studying the way of peace as it was found in the Sermon on the Mount. And as the church began to train people in the Sermon on the Mount lifestyle, characterized by peacemaking, there were two principal components. The first was that peacemaking involved the eradication of violence from the life of the Christian. Peacemaking was the eradication of violence from the life of the Christian. So let's say uh, Andy's Andy's a Christian, and I go to him and say, hey, I am interested in becoming a Christian like you. Can you help me? You say, sure, I'll be your sponsor. Let's go meet with the teacher." As a, as a prospective Christian, I would not be invited to corporate worship. They were, they were scared about outsiders coming in and ratting them out and them all being uh, persecuted or thrown into the arena. You weren't allowed to be welcomed into corporate worship until you were baptized, which could be two or three years later. But Andy, as my sponsor, say, hey, let's go and meet with the teacher. Say, okay. The teacher said, so, John, you want to become a Christian. Let's see if you're really teachable. Let's see if you're really open to learning the way of Jesus. Let's start by talking about your vocation. Uh, Are you a prostitute? Do you work in the arena? Are you a soldier who kills people on a regular basis? All of these conflict with our values, the values uh, against violence. If you want to follow in the way of Jesus, you need to quit your profession as a prostitute. You need to quit your job as a gladiator in the arena. If you're a soldier, you vow not to use violence or extort other people. And from the very beginning, there was an invitation to extreme obedience. You want to join? Like, we're going to start with your vocation. And the early church understood that the way of Jesus was utterly intolerant to violence. In the example of prostitution, we also often have sexual violence, things like rape, which was very common in the first century in the, in the ancient Near East. Uh, the, the church was utterly against violence to the vulnerable, and so it was not uncommon in the Roman world for unwanted babies to literally be thrown into the streets. And the, the Christians started the first orphanages because they went into the streets and picked up these unwanted babies. That's why the church historically has been against violence to the unborn, against abortion because it it, it breaks with our ethos of peacemaking. It's violence to the vulnerable. The church was against violence as entertainment, which in in the first centuries in in North Africa and throughout the Roman Empire uh, meant going to the arena to watch blood sport, to watch animals maim and kill people or to watch gladiators kill prisoners. The church was against uh, violence as a form of entertainment. The church was against political violence, of using force to get one's way, against rhetorical violence. When it came to, uh, like, uh, like, disputing lawsuits, they said it's better to be wronged by another believer than be, to be taken to court. Now, primitive Christians condemned and rejected violence because it was incongruent with the way of Jesus. And most of us would probably think, like, violence is just not part of my life. In, but, but we can ask ourselves in a more general sense, in what ways might we condone, or encourage, or be entertained by, or participate in different kinds of violence, of, of, of instituting our way by force? Really embarrassing example. Uh, this happened last week, or, or a week and a half ago. Um, uh, and forgive me for, for using so many parenting examples. For those of you who are not parents, I don't want to be annoying about that. But um, I, was, I was having the kids clean up the backyard. And one of my kids was, was doing something that was really annoying to me and not letting me get to part of this yard where, like, he'd made a little clubhouse fort thing. And he just wouldn't bend. He wouldn't let me do the thing that I wanted. And so the, the conversation transitioned from being me needing to get to this part of the yard to clean to me wanting to win because my kid is getting in my way. And you do do this thing, some of you who are parents have done this too, where you make threats that you know are empty, and you like you escalate the conversations in ways that you would be so embarrassed by 20 minutes later. Or if any other adults heard you do it, you would think, I am, I'm just utterly ashamed. And I did this to my kid, and it broke his heart. It was violence. I compromised who I was. I compromised my sense of patience and identity. I made an empty threat that I absolutely knew I wasn't going to keep. I escalated the conversation in a way that scared him. I was using violence, rhetorical violence with a child. And all of us do this in one way or another. Things things in life become about winning, and so we escalate because we're going to get our way, dang it. Where in your life is there this this presence of violence, of of establishing your way by force? Kreider. He said, impatient actions do not produce what they promise. I found this to be true. I was trying to short-circuit this issue with my kid, and I made it much worse. Impatient actions do not produce what they promise. Instead, impatient actions make things worse, bringing about massive misfortunes. Now, nothing undertaken through impatience can be transacted without violence. And everything done with violence has either met with no success or has collapsed or has plunged to its own destruction. One of the things Kreider said that was really fascinating to me was, if you had to take a guess at what was the most often quoted passage in the Old Testament by the early church, You think, well, surely it's about Jesus, it's Isaiah 53, or maybe it's Psalm 23, or maybe it's, you know, some of the big ones that we all think about. No, the most often quoted passage in the Old Testament by the early church came from Isaiah 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills. All nations will stream to it. People will come and say, come, let's go to the mountain of the Lord, the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And then it gets interesting. Interesting. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. So come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Cyprian said, which of us has not, doesn't have this memorized by heart? Everybody knew it. In light of this, he will judge the nations in light of the justice that God would ultimately administer on the earth, he said, we can reject the ways of violence. Peacemaking, learning the way of Jesus in the primitive church, meant the eradication of violence. But second, peacemaking also included the administration of justice. Uh, This meant uh, chiefly care for the poor, uh, care for the prisoner, racial reconciliation, love of enemies, the way that early Christians demonstrated to the world that their identity had been redeemed was through this renewed behavior, uh, chiefly through the administration of justice and care for the most vulnerable. Kriter. he said, then Criter the, here is talking about a person who's just on the edge of being baptized. So they've gone through rigorous vocational examination, they've memorized great passages of Scripture, their whole way of life has been examined, but just on the verge of their baptism, they go under something called the second scrutiny, and they would be asked these kinds of questions. They said their way of life should be examined. Have they lived virtuously while they were being catechized, discipled? Have they honored the widows, visited the sick, fulfilled all good works? The leaders did not ask them about the candidate's orthodoxy, that was earlier, uh, about their mastery of doctrine, about their memorization of biblical passages, about their piety or their prayer life. All of that's already been done. On the edge of baptism, uh, they asked them, they did not ask them about many areas of distinctive Christian habitus that catechumens were attempting to master. They didn't ask about the candidate's opinions and attitudes, for example, what they thought about poor people. They did, however, want to know how the candidates treated poor people. Actions said it all. Peacemaking meant the eradication of violence. Peacemaking also included the administration of justice as a regular part of the life of the Christian, their identity, and their habitus. And the final extension of peacemaking was through prayer. If there was a place where the church exercised violence, they used that word violence, it was in prayer. They would go uh, with God in war, violent war against the principalities of darkness in this world. When the church got together, they were going to battle in prayer on behalf of of themselves, on behalf of their families, on behalf of their city. And this was a church growth strategy. As a persecuted uh, minority... In a pagan culture that was utterly antithetical to your beliefs, it was extremely difficult to get in. The church did not give a lick about growing. They were indifferent to numbers. They were indifferent to pragmatics and what works. Well, we could soften the message, we could surely grow the church. And they had the opposite approach of what's going to work in getting the message out. What they were concerned with was faithfulness to the way of Jesus. I am a Christian. And faithfulness to the way of Jesus meant faithfulness to the way of peace as expressed in the Sermon on the Mount. And the church demonstrated that the way of Jesus grows by attraction, not by harassment. That the way of Jesus, the Christian movement, grows by beckoning, not by threatening, It's never violent and it's always striving for peace. Not because peace is the most effective way of growing the church, but peace is who we are. Jesus teaches us the way of peace. And it gives us this general invitation against pragmatics, against chiefly what works, that we are never to compromise who we are just because it helps move the ball forward. Never compromise who you are just because it works, because it's easier. For Christians, the ends do not justify the means, whether it's in business or in politics, in singleness, in sexuality, in parenting, in any area of life. Don't compromise who you are as a Christian simply because it's easier. You know, it's pretty fascinating. I feel like there's a story in the Old Testament of Josiah who was the king. And Josiah had come from a long line of kings in Judah and over the generations they neglected the law, the teachings that God had given through Moses and a priest finds it and brings the law to Josiah and he has this revelation, we've been missing out on this. And he brings the law to the people like a treasure that's been hidden for generations and they go through a season of repentance. And as I've been studying and diving deep into into scripture, into scholars, I feel like I've been bringing out this treasure that for me has been hidden in the Sermon on the Mount. As I especially consider how is the church, especially the early church in the first three centuries when it was just becoming established in the face of intense persecution, coming to appreciate the centrality of the Sermon on the Mount and the way of peace for the early church, I feel like like Josiah is saying, oh my gosh, guys, we've missed this amazing treasure. We've missed our primary curriculum as followers of Jesus. And our church has always been somewhat indifferent to Numbers, I'm really grateful for the growth that we've experienced. Like, I mean, it's just been honestly amazing, statistically very improbable according to the way that new churches tend to grow. But I I would love for us in our general ethos and posture together as a church to be fairly indifferent to big numbers. Big numbers do not indicate deep discipleship. What does excite me and what does really like get me turning on the inside is like, what would it be like if we tried to like make this our metric? How many people are living in the way of the Sermon on the Mount? (laughs) Man, we have to have really attractive buildings and really cute sermon series and give away cars and iPads at the American church to compel people to come because they're unimpressed with the way that we live. The early church, in the face of strong disincentives to become Christians, uh, to to maintain their Christian identity, exploded because their habitus, their personality, their identity, the virtues, the, the reflexive way in which they lived in the world was so compelling, they just happened to grow. I would rather do that as a church, wouldn't you? Wouldn't it be great to not get drunk on our own wine and say, man, it's awesome, we had so many people here on Easter Sunday. Well, who cares? It's great, and I thank God for it. But wouldn't it be even more amazing to be a kind of community that was willing to commit to learning and embodying the teachings of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount together? Wouldn't it be great to to quit whining about like the the role of Christianity in America or however we're going to fill our pews for the years to come and try to make church entertaining? Wouldn't it be great to give up all of those conversations, those pragmatic conversations about what works and instead decide together like we're going to leave the working part of it to the Holy Spirit and commit to each other. We're going to follow in the way of Jesus and look like what it means to be Sermon on the Mount Christians. That's way more entertaining that's way more engaging, way more costly, too. But, but but if we're not in this to follow Jesus, what a tremendous waste of time. And I just say I have no idea what it means. I do not believe that I'm the moral exemplar of the Sermon on the Mount in this community. But I would say, as a leader in this community, that's my it's my ambition, it's my hope, it's my desire to see us faithfully walk in this way together. In the coming months, as we talk about love for enemies and praying for those who persecute you, and we talk about uh, lust and adultery and anger and murder, we talk about our public life and our private life, my admonition to you and encouragement to you is to be people who are open and teachable and ready to follow in the way of Jesus. And in that way, bearing a family resemblance to the world. We've tried way too hard to entertain people and to make things work pragmatically. Maybe instead we actually counterintuitively need to turn inward and to turn upward and to learn from him how to live like him together. It's the way of Jesus. It's the way of peace. Unlearning our patterns of violence, of, of, of being limited by pragmatism, and learning from him to, to develop an imagination of peace and joining the Holy Spirit in what he's doing and making more people like Jesus in the world. If that's your heart, let's let's pray together. Jesus, I just thank you for the treasure of your word. And this is a big one. We are habituated and acculturated into being like people who think like we think and live like we live. Many of us have grown up in this country. We've grown up with the values of our country, and we hear the, the values uh, coming from a far-off place, the values of the kingdom of God, and they stand in contrast or they, they confuse us, they mystify us. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you'd give this like special gift of grace to the people of Cornerstone and to me. That we would hear your teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and be utterly compelled to obey, not to argue or to justify, or to prove why we needn't need to obey. But you give us this dispensation, this disposition that is so eager to just do the stuff you said because it's what you said, and it's because who we are. We're Christians. Help us to adapt this, this gospel-shaped, cross-shaped way of living in the world and be people who with you are instruments of peace and healing confident that we don't have to worry about what works or what's pragmatic because in the end you will make all things work out for good you will establish true justice and so we pray Lord Jesus as we wait that you'd come that you'd expedite the day of your coming you'd expedite the day of your justice the church forever has prayed how long Lord how long but make us instruments of peace where there's hatred help us to love where there's darkness help us to shine Where there's violence, help us to be ambassadors of justice and peace. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done for us on the cross. The punishment that was for us was laid on him and it established for us peace. Thank you that you established peace between us and heaven, peace between us with one another. Shed through your blood on the cross. Help us to learn the way of the cross and the way of peace. And this we pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen.